Well, if you will, open up your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. And if you have a copy of the Confession, open it up to chapter 9. Philippians chapter 2, and then Confession chapter 9. As I do many times, I'm going to read a portion of Scripture here, just two verses. Uh, not for the purpose of preaching a sermon on these verses, but just to get established in our minds a particular principle. And then we'll look at the confession. Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 12 and 13. I'll make just some brief observations. The apostle writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now notice very quickly, we are commanded to work out our own salvation. Nobody gets a pass. Nobody gets to say, well, God is sovereign. So, well, He has commanded work out. We have to do something with the salvation that we have received. We are commanded. It's our job to do this working outward of that which God has worked in us. The ground that we have for that command, in verse 13, for it is God who works in us. The ground for, the, for our responsibility to work out is God's working in he works in us, and therefore we have every uh, ability and responsibility to then obey this command of working it out. And God works in us here two things. To will for His good pleasure. The word will means desire. And then to work for His good pleasure. Apart from God's working in us, we will not be able to will or work according to His good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd bless it. We pray that you'd help us to understand it. We pray that you'd help us to see ourselves in light of it. Father, we pray that you would be pleased with our worship as it's been said. Lord, look down upon us and see a small gathering of once rebellious and hostile creatures. And yet here we've come. Many of us, we've come on our day off, the one day we have, and we've come to worship you. Lord, this is your doing. Lord, receive, receive glory from that. You have redeemed us. You have gathered us. Once rebels, now come to sit and to open up this ancient book of your inspired word and to learn what you have said of us, to learn about what you have done for us. Lord, we want all the glory and all the praise to just to be yours. And we hope and pray that you look down on this, this time with delight and pleasure and that you would bless us and bless the, the reading of your word and, and the going out of your word as we open up this topic of the will of man. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we 
are looking at chapter 9 in our confession, which is entitled, Of Free Will. Now, before everybody runs out angry because they were just convinced that we did not believe in the free will of man, I want to draw just several observations that we can know from the existence of this chapter. First, this doctrine of the free will of man was something under discussion and consideration. It was a topic of concern in the Reformation and post-Reformation era, the theological discussion. We know that because they included it in the confession. And everything in, these, in the, the ancient creeds and even through the Reformed confessions, the reason they included these things were because they were absolutely crucial to the Christian faith and because they were topics of debate that needed to be clarified. Secondly, the, the existence of this in our confession lets us know that the, do, the doctrine was studied and confirmed over against aberrations. In other words, somebody had the wrong view of the free will of man, and then a bunch of men got together, a lot smarter than us, gave a lot of time to the study of this issue, and they clarified the existence of this chapter, lets us know that the orthodox position on the free will of man was publicly set forth. We have it in written, printed form. Anybody can find it. In those days, in the days of the writing of the Westminster Confession and the, the Savoy Declaration and the London Confession, it was publicly put forward. It's still public. So then, the existence of this chapter in our confession lets us know that what we as a church believe about the free will of man is not hidden, it's not mysterious, it is clearly publicly acknowledged. So then, anyone who would accuse us of any different view other than that which is espoused here has either not put forth the basic effort of reading through the first nine chapters of our confession or they would be intentionally making false accusations for the purpose of slander. Because our confession says very clearly what we believe about the free will of man. We most certainly believe in the free will of man. And we believe, like everything else dealing with humanity, the free will of man was and is subject to the fall of man and the corruption that came at the fall. It is subject to drastic alteration. And the free will of man is not beyond the scope of the redemptive power of God, just like every other part of man. Remember that we're in this large section, chapter 7 to 20 in the Confession, that James Renahan calls the covenant, because everything centers around God's redemptive work in Christ the Mediator to rescue fallen man and bring him to himself. Now, if the will of man somehow has circumvented the fall and remained in the condition that it was at creation, then it would not need to be redeemed. It would be, it would be fine. And we would also conclude that Genesis 6-5 is false, which says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention, every inclination, every disposition, every craving, every leaning of man in his heart was only evil and that continually. 
That's man after the fall. So the will of man did not circumvent the fall. It wasn't as if everything in Adam fell except for his will. It remained perfectly intact. No. It is subject just like every part of man to the fall. So let's start with a couple of definitions. I think this is important. What is the will? The will is the appetitive faculty within all men. It is the ability to want. If you have the ability to want, you have a will. It's the ability to crave after something. The will, as we just saw in Philippians 2.13, the will is not action. God works in us both, two things, to will and to do. They're not the same thing. The will is not action for men. The will is not choice. It is the ability to want, but is not yet choice. Now let me just picture for yourself the 17-year-old boy who's gotten his driver's license, he's gotten a car, he's sick and tired of his parents always breathing down his neck, telling him what he can and can't do. So he drives off into the woods somewhere and he parks his truck and he throws it in park and he says, finally, I can do what I want. Okay? Do, that's action. What, that's choice. Want, that's will. The three separate things in the, the outflowing of the, 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 the inner workings and the outworkings of man. The will is the, we, we often call it the wanter. You have a wanter. Trees, they don't want. Clouds, they don't want. People, we want. We have a will. Okay, what does the word free mean? It means without external restraint. Nothing outside is restraining anything inside without external restraint. So, the, so free will could be defined as the ability to desire or crave without any external restraint. In other words, nothing outside of me constrains me to want anything contrary to that which is inside of me wants. In that sense, the will of man is free. Nothing outside of you can make you want anything contrary to what is inside of you. Nothing outside of man restrains man's ability to desire. So when we come to passages in Scripture, because as we know, free will is in the Bible many times. Free will offerings, for example, in the Old Testament. Imagine the Israelite worshiper... He comes and he wants to present a free will offering. What that means is nothing in the law of God has constrained him. Nothing outside of him, the law, is constraining him to offer this offering. Now, is he allowed to bring a pig? No. Is he allowed to offer a free will offering in Bethel? There's a tabernacle there. In Dan? No. There's, a, there's an altar there. Can we not? No. Even in the offering of a free will offering, he is still constrained by something to offer his offerings to God. Which leads to another foundational truth. Any discussion of man has to begin with the God who created man. Any discussion of the will of man must begin with the God who created that will. 1 Timothy 6.15 says, referring to God, that He is the blessed and only sovereign. 
the King of kings and Lord of lords. That word sovereign, potentate, absolute, monarch. God is the only absolute monarch. The only one. God is the only sovereign. So God is the only being that has absolute freedom. Human beings are not absolute in our freedom. You and I cannot will ourselves any further than is within our capacity as human beings. So we could look, we could go to the, the shores of some tropical island right now and we would be able to see that man really, really, really wants to be able to breathe underwater. I mean, look at all of these apparatuses that they hook up to swim under the water. They really want to breathe underwater, but they can't do it. They cannot change their nature. Same with flying. We get up in airplanes. Well, that's not enough. Well, let's take something smaller. Let's get a jet pack. Let's get the smallest thing we can to try to fly unassisted. doesn't matter how bad you want it. You can't do it because you're a human being. The will of man is not an effectual power that we have. It cannot change reality. It cannot change our nature. It is a faculty within us. And any freedom that we have must be understood as subservient to God, as God, and our nature as human beings created by God. We cannot will anything into existence. We cannot will any change in reality. We cannot will any change in our nature or in the nature of any other creature. We are restricted by our nature as a man. On the other hand, God's will is effectual and unrestrained. For God to will is to do. For God to will is to effect change. We are not God. God has not endowed men with that power. Therefore, our wills cannot change nature. It cannot change God or work outside of the absolute sovereignty of God. And so, therefore, the will of man is free only insofar as it complies with his nature as a human being and is always subservient to God's will. Another illustration would be like a fish in an aquarium. He is absolutely free to swim anywhere, anytime he wants within those glass walls. He's free. He's absolutely free to eat anything he wants that his owner sprinkles in the water. That fish is not free to breathe air like a human. That fish is not free to build a nest and live in a tree like a bird. No matter how much he may want it, he simply cannot do it. Here's the reality. He doesn't want it because he's a fish. He is content to continue living in water because he has no concept of what it would be like to live in a tree because it's contrary to his nature. He does not want that which is contrary to his nature. So in that realm as a fish, he's free to swim and live and eat and he thinks that he's got it made and he goes to this corner and he goes back to this corner and it's like he's found a whole new world every day and yet he's still within that fish tank because he's bound by his nature. The human will is like that. It's free insofar as it complies with the nature of humanity and the being of God. Now the confession, let's look at what the confession says. I'm going to try to get through this whole chapter. The, the, the paragraphs are very short. The confession 
actually follows a, a common redemptive historical theme. We often talk about creation, fall, redemptive, redemption, restoration. The confession follows that theme in this chapter. So the first thing we see is the, the created will, or the will at creation. This would be the first two paragraphs. They deal with God's work in creation and man's condition at creation. It says that God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice. You see all these different words. The will of man with the ability, the power of acting upon choice. Will, act, choice. God has given mankind the ability to will, that is to want, to choose that which it wants, and to act based on that which it chooses, which is based on that which it wants. God has given that in creation. Confession gives the reference to Matthew 17, 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Whatever they pleased. That's the same word that's used in Philippians 2, both to will, thelos, same word, whatever they wanted. And the point here is that the men wanted. They had a will. God has created man with a will. We have a wanter. James 1.14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You have desires, that's your will, your wanter. And every individual person has his own faculty of will, his own wanter via creation. So God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice, and that faculty of will is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. Notice the discussion is couched in the nature of man. Man, as a man, is not determined by his nature to do good or evil. Nothing in the nature of man as he was created necessitates a predetermined requirement of good or evil. In other words... The existence of evil doesn't deny you the right to say you're a human. Look at all of us. We're all sinful. That's who we are. But the absence of evil and the existence of good also does not deny the nature of a human. Look at Adam before the fall. Look at Christ, true man. And yet there was no evil in him. The nature of a man as human nature does not demand that a person... Force, be forced to do evil or forced to do good. That's what it's saying. The confession references here, oddly enough, Deuteronomy 30, 19, which is the text that so many people go to to argue against what they think we believe. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, or today, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Now, now, a lot of people, you've heard, they use that verse and they see, see right there. They have to choose. And we say, right. Nobody is saying that man, men don't choose. Interestingly, they never go to Joshua 24, where Joshua says in verse 15, If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your, your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people said, well, we're, we're with you, Joshua. And then in verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. 
for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Notice there that man's inability to will in the direction of God is rooted in God's holiness and their sin. Your natures are off. You can't will that way. You can't do it. They will not and therefore they cannot. They do not will to serve God and therefore they choose not to and then they act on that choice. So men have a will. We all have a will. We have desires. We make choices based on our will. Then we act on our choices, which are the product of our will. And man's actions are not determined to good or evil by any requirement in the human nature. We can't say, well, because you have a human nature, you have to do evil. It's not in the nature of a man as created to be determined either way. Second paragraph, man in his state of innocency... There we have the time frame again. Pre-fall, state of innocency. Created man. Think about Adam without sin, without the stain of sin, without any experience of sin, without any inclination towards sin whatsoever. None of it. His will, his wanter, uncorrupted. His will is not determined by his human nature to good or to evil. And in that state, he had freedom and power to will and to do. There's that separation again, will and do. He had the freedom and the power to will and to do. He was not coerced. We're not talking, we don't look at Adam and say that it was a coerced determinism. God made Adam sin. We don't say God made Adam obey. No, God created Adam in his image and Adam, because of what was in him, obeyed. He had the freedom and the power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God. Adam was free to desire that which was good and well-pleasing to God. Adam was free to do that which is good and well-pleasing to God. Nothing outside of Adam necessitated him to do, this, to do this. Nothing outside of Adam hindered him from this. He was free to please God. Now think. He was free to please God. How far is that from the typical consideration of human freedom? Typically we think of freedom in terms of freedom from God, not unto God. Men say, they think, they're being, they think they're honoring God by saying, God is a perfect gentleman. He would never force himself on anyone. As if, if God did force himself on someone, that would be a bad thing. That's what we need. That's what we would love to happen, is for God to force himself upon us. We're not free from God. We've been alienated from God, and so we are so depraved that we tend to find the apex of human freedom in his ability to reject God rather than his ability to do what God desires. At creation, Adam was free to do what pleased God. We don't see our state in sin as one of bondage and misery. We see man as better off if he were not constrained or compelled toward God in any way. We see God, would, he does us a better service if he would just stay at a distance. That's the good God. And the, and the reason is because most men, most people, we don't like people in our business. And because God, well, He is the apex man. 
he's just the highest version of what we ourselves are, then we think the greater God must be the one who stands at the furthest distance and leaves us to ourselves. We want freedom from God, but at creation, Adam had freedom unto God. Freedom to please God. A freedom that we don't have in and of ourselves anymore. And men actually argue for man's freedom in this way, which is ironic. At creation, the capstone of human freedom was not freedom from God. It was freedom unto God. We see this in Christ Himself. He was free from all of the, of the hindrance of inherent sin to live unto God. He wasn't free from God. He was the one in whom God was well pleased and He was free to that. That's freedom. So we come back to Adam. He had the freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well pleasing to God, but yet was mutable so that he might fall from it. He was not immutably free. He was not sealed in that condition some way so that nothing could change. He was capable of falling from his original freedom unto God. The confession references Ecclesiastes 7.29. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Man was upright at creation. Our sin is, is a product of our own scheming. We have sought it out, but God made us upright. We were not immutable. Adam was not immutable. Genesis 3.6 is also referenced. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Notice the tree was desired to make one wise. She wanted to be wise. She saw that th that tree, I'm being told now, is how I get wisdom. That word desired is the same word that's used for coveting. She wanted wisdom. And so she chose that which promised to give her wisdom. And then she acted by taking and eating by her own unconstrained will. Nothing outside of Eve forced her to take that fruit. She took it and she ate it of her own unconstrained will. So man was made mutable. Man's sin was man's fault. The, the illustration that I think is, is most helpful is kind of like a drunk man. Whose fault is it that he's drunk? It's his fault. He drank it. His inebriated state is due to his own actions. And now all men are drunk with sin. Our state is now in a state of sin, as we see in paragraph 3, where we move into the will after the fall. Man, by his fall, into a state of sin. Now what is that state? Remember back to chapter 6, state of total depravity, dead in sin, wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. What is the will? It is a faculty of the soul. Therefore, the will is defiled. It is corrupt. It is mangled. We have the ability to want, but that ability, that faculty, has been corrupted by the fall. The state of sin, the confession references five, Romans 5, 6, which says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. What is, what is our state? What is the state of sin? It's, it's weakness. We're ungodly. Romans 8, 7. 
The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's the state of sin. Hostile to God. Does not submit. Now follow this. Submit, that's action. That action has to flow from a choice, which has to flow from a will. Paul says it cannot which means it is without the ability to submit to God's law because the mind set on the flesh does not will to submit to God's law because it is actually hostile to God and His law. It cannot because it will not. Now how can man be held responsible? Again, here's the illustration. Officer pulls the drunk man over. Sir, you were swerving across the yellow line. Officer, it's not my fault. I'm drunk. You can't hold me responsible. I'm drunk. That's, that's insane. That's absurd. It's your fault you're drunk. Now you're responsible for drinking and driving and crossing the center line. Hostility is our state in sin. The will of man is opposed to God. Therefore, by the fall, man, it says, hath wholly lost all ability... To wit, ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. Now some read that we have wholly lost all ability to will, period, close the book. You don't believe man has a will. But that's not what it says. Has lost all ability, and there's a very specific effect, the ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. Does it say that man does not have a will? No. Does it say that man cannot will or choose or act in any way that is good by some external standard? No. Can an unregenerate man help an old lady across the street? Of course. He is not so incapacitated that he can't do anything of any external or we might call it under the sun value. Does it say that men are robots and that God is, is, is working everything in us to make us and force us to do certain things? No. It says that we have lost all ability to will any spiritual good accompanying salvation. Because salvation is an act of God, not man. Now if we think about salvation, what is the first act of God in saving a man? It's regeneration. That's the first thing God does when He saves us. First thing God does. Regeneration. Okay, whether you believe regeneration precedes faith or not, which it does, but even if you don't believe that, even if you believe it doesn't, the first act of God is regeneration. Whether that follows on the coattails of your faith or not, the first act of God in salvation is regeneration. After regeneration, you're no longer dealing with a will that is corrupt. You're, you're dealing with... Well, it, it does have corruption. You're no longer dealing with the will as it was after the state of the fall. It's now under the power of the Holy Spirit. So come back right before that, right before that regeneration, whatever, whatever you believe is happening there, right before that, what is the unrestrained, natural, fallen will able to accomplish in accompanying God in His work of regeneration? Not a thing. Not a thing. Why? Because we've lost all ability to will any spiritual good accompanying salvation. We cannot will 
any spiritual good accompanying salvation. And that would follow on, or for, be for two reasons. First, as we've seen, because the faculty of the will is opposed to God. Prior to regeneration, it's opposed to God. It wouldn't help if it could. But secondly, going back to where we started, the, the will of man is not an effectual power whereby man can just change the nature of things. It's just us wanting things. So when men act like their will somehow helps out God or coerces God in salvation, they're really doing what, what the word faith teachers do when they ascribe the power of the tongue to create and, and, and make and manufacture the atmosphere with their words. We don't have that power. We are creatures. The human will can't do it, and if it, even if it could, it wouldn't because it's opposed to God. This is why we read in John 1, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Regeneration is being born of God. The will of man can't help that. It's a work of God. Whether you believe it precedes faith or not, the will of man doesn't help in this situation. The will of man cannot initiate, cause, or secure the work of regeneration, nor does it have any desire to prior to being born again because it's hostile to God. Romans 9, 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If the human will could do it, we don't need God's mercy. We don't need God's grace. And that, that's the danger. So... We've lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. The natural man, that's the unregenerate man, prior to God's work of regeneration, is averse to that which is good. He's hostile to God. He's dead in sin, in that state of sin and alienation from God. He's not able by his own strength, to convert himself. We don't have that ability. We are just creatures. Or prepare himself thereunto. We can't even get ready for it. Why? Because we're hostile to God. We don't want to. We're opposed to God. We're not able to act contrary to the will which is corrupt within us apart from his power of regeneration. Until the moment in time act of regeneration, that man remains hostile to God. The confession here references Ephesians 2, 1 and 5. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead in, our, in your trespasses. We, we've looked at that. Cut off, alienated from God. Titus 3, 3 through 5 sort of explains who we were and what God has done. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. To say that a man in that condition, that fallen condition prior to regeneration, can have the will or the desire to come to God 
assumes that he's no longer hostile to God. To say that he may come to God is to assume that he's not alienated from God. You see, our alienation from God is two-sided. We run from God and He cuts us off. It's not as if maybe we could come back and He would say, I'm glad you're back. No, no, He sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. He alienated us and we alienate ourselves. It's, it's a two-way, it, it's two-sided. So men don't come to God because we're alienated from God. To say that a man is coming to God prior to that is to assume he's seeking after God. But the Scripture says man does not seek after God. We're alienated from the life of God. We're hostile to God. The man in that state does not have a will that is seeking after God. He may want his sins forgiven. He may want to skip out on hell. If you say you want to go to heaven or hell, he might say, I think I'd rather go to heaven, really, to be honest. Heaven sounds better than hell. He may want to get his life straightened up and get back on the right track. None of those wants are of any spiritual good accompanying salvation for a fallen man. John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You can't. The Father must initiate. So that brings us to paragraph 4. Once God carries out this work of regeneration, we see the redeemed will. Creation, fall, now we move into restoration. Like every other part of man in salvation, the will of man also undergoes a dramatic change starting at regeneration and making progress from that point. Paragraph 4 says, When God converts a sinner and translates him into a state of grace. Notice this is all of God. God converts the sinner. God translates the sinner. Colossians 1.13 says that He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. At regeneration, we go from the domain and influence of evil and we are placed down under the domain and influence and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the state of grace. The human condition wherein the grace of God is the reigning moral and spiritual faculty. A lot of men speak of grace and they say, well, it's, it's unmerited favor. And in their mind, they have this picture that here's grace. We're all on the playground, and God's sitting over here on the bench, and He looks at us, and He just smiles. And He, says, he just says, they haven't merited it, but I just favor that person. That's not what grace is. Grace, as an attribute of God, is who God is. So God's grace is omnipotent grace, all-powerful. God's grace is immutable grace. It never changes. It's always coming after its object. It is an unstoppable power in God. God's grace is God Himself, by His Spirit, giving to a man what that man does not have in himself. That's the state of grace. You're in the state of grace? God's coming after you. And He's giving to you constantly everything that you need that you don't have of yourself. So He converts a sinner, translates him into this state of grace. He freeth him from his natural bondage under sin. So if the Son sets you free you will be free indeed. Not absolutely free. We don't throw off restraints. We are free from bondage under sin. But we become slaves of Christ, which is true freedom. By this, His grace alone, He... Notice the, the language is, is really ironic. By His grace alone enables Him freely to will. Now think about that. God enables you freely to will. Who's really in charge here? God's doing the enabling. 
He allows us, gives us the power freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. That's the true freedom of the sons of God. It's not like carowinds where you go through the turnstile and you just run. You've got to get to the roller coaster. Everybody scatters. That's not what happens. We are set free to go straight to God and please Him. That's, that's the freedom. It's not freedom from God's tyranny. It's not freedom from God's ungentlemanlike behavior. It is freedom to God to know that I can now act by His Spirit through the blood of Christ and God is pleased. We can please God in our actions. Because He gives us that grace. He enables us to do that which is spiritually good. The regenerate man is able to freely, without any constraint, from anything outside of himself, do that which is spiritually good. Why? Because he is a new creature. That which is empowering him is not something outside of him. It's God working in him. It's not something outside of him. God is not forcing a man to do what he does not want to do. God is giving that man the power to do exactly what he wants to do as a new creature. His will is not hostile to God any longer. Philippians 2.13 It is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. God works them both. Now we have to balance all of that with this statement. Yet so as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he doth not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but, also, but doth also will that which is evil. We go back to chapter 6, paragraph 5, which said, The corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. So we are new creatures. We have been born again. We have the Spirit of God. But alongside of that is that corrupt nature that continues until death. And so the, in the regenerate man, as we've said, it's almost as if there are two natures, two wills, two desires, as the language Paul would use would be almost like two laws, constantly fighting and warring against each other. And, and the confession references several texts from Romans chapter 7. Paul says, I do not understand my own actions, verse 15, for I do not do what I want, but, the very, but I do the very thing I hate. Verses 18 and 19, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Verse 21, So I find it to be a law, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 23, But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's, he's born again, and he's, he has what amounts to these two laws, these two desires warring within him. He says in Galatians 5.17, The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The unmortified flesh still has its desires. The Spirit working in you creates new desires. They both dwell in us and they're just fighting until we die. They're fighting. So it's renewed. The will of man is renewed in salvation, but it's not perfected until glory, which is paragraph 5, the glorified will. This work will only be completed in the glorified state. It says the will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. And only when you have waged a battle with sin 
and you have understood the corruption that is within you, can you read that with joy? We will be saved someday to sin no more. There will be no more battle. It will be perfectly and immutably free to good alone. Ephesians 4.13 describes that state. It says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our aim. Full maturation. That's God's aim working in us. Full maturity. Hebrews 12.23 refers to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God the judge... And the spirits of the righteous made perfect. When we gather for worship, we are gathering with an assembly that, is, that consists of the spirits of righteous men which have been made perfect. Those already in the presence of God, their spirits have been perfected. And at the resurrection, their glorified bodies will meet with their perfected spirits and the transformation will be complete. And from that point... There will never again be the risk of falling. Sometimes we might wonder, well, what, what, what about in a billion years in heaven? Well, what, what, what if somebody decides they want to start another rebellion and, and all of this, this whole thing starts over again? No, it can't happen. Because we will be glorified, sealed immutably like the elect angels. We'll live forever in the bliss of being able to perfectly please God will be in a state better than Adam because we will be sealed in our glory, not able to fall. So, does man have a free will? The will as a faculty of the human soul is never constrained by anything outside of that person. That's why we have to be born again before we will believe because nothing outside of us can make us do anything contrary to what is inside of us. The nature must be changed and the will converted before they will believe. The unconstrained will of man is subject to the fall and thus corrupt. The will of a man is changed at regeneration and the will of man is always subservient to his own nature as a human being and to God who is the only sovereign. We're not sovereign. That's what we mean when we say that God is sovereign over these matters. God is sovereign over salvation and we are not. We are not saying that we are puppets and God is just dangling the strings and, and forcing us to do that. Nobody believes that. Well, maybe somebody believes that. People believe a lot of crazy stuff. Nobody in, in, in Orthodox Christianity believes this stuff. This is what our confession says and this is what we believe. Let's pray and then we'll sing another song. Father, it's good news to hear that we are not sovereign, that man is not in control, that our evil schemes will not win the day. It's good to hear that your sovereign grace rules and reigns, that you are charging forward, that you are pursuing and conquering rebel hearts, that you have already been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, all we await and all we participate in is the working out of that in time. But we know, Lord, that you are the king over all. You are the blessed and only sovereign. Lord, help us to worship you. Help us to keep these doctrines in proper balance. Lord, help us not to feel 
as though simply because we've learned information that we are now closer to you. Lord, I pray that these truths would be now taken in and made applicable to our drawing near to you and our communion with you. May these things encourage and spur within us greater worship. May we draw even closer to you, knowing that you must work in us. Lord, help us to hunger after that working in us to will and to do. Help us to be sensitive to your Spirit when your Spirit shows us that we are not willing to do that which is pleasing to you. And may we be changed after the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.